the part of becoming the first Indigenous president of the Canadian Medical Association that resonates most with me is knowing that youth out there are going to see someone who's like them and comes from a background like them and knowing that they have the same sorts of opportunity that I'm going to have in the coming years. That's Dr. Alika Lafontaine. He just became the first Indigenous person elected as president of the Canadian Medical Association. And he's our guest on the Akamemuk Podcast. Dance, wow and welcome to the Akamemuk Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for, you all persevere. Or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And our guest today is Dr. Alika Lafontaine, the next president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Lafontaine is an anesthesiologist practicing in Grand Prairie, Alberta. He has Anishinaabe, Cree, Métis, and Pacific Islander ancestry and was born and raised in Treaty 4 territory in southern Saskatchewan. He has won numerous awards over his career. He previously served as president of the Indigenous Physicians Association and at age 25, he won the CBC's Canada's Next Great Prime Minister competition. Dr. Alika Lafontaine, a very big welcome to our Akamema podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Alika, um, can I call you Alika or should I call you doctor? Alika's fine. Only administrators call me doctor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Alika. On your election, you know, as the next incoming president of the Canadian Medical Association, what does that mean to you to become the first Indigenous head of that organization? I think the path on how I got here really centered around seeing the impacts of COVID on my colleagues and then feeling the need to do something to kind of contribute in helping to mitigate some of those impacts. Uh, I think being the first Indigenous president of the Canadian Medical Association in 2022 really opens up a lot of possibilities. Um, As you know from your own work in encouraging youth to get involved with education and, you know, job skills training and contributing to the community, the more that you can see people like you within positions of influence and leadership, the more you believe that that's a possibility for you as well. And I think the part of becoming the first Indigenous president of the Canadian Medical Association that resonates most with me is knowing that youth out there are going to see someone who's like them and comes from a background like them and knowing that they have the same sorts of opportunity that I'm going to have in the coming years. That's a really great statement. Like Getting our people, First Nations, Métis people, into into leadership positions, positions of power and authority, you can see yourselves. If you can dream it, you can achieve it. That's a powerful example. So again, for myself, congratulations. Great job. Because I know your journey hasn't been easy. You've had a, a lifelong journey of challenges because even in the story of yourself in primary school, having a teacher say to you and your parents, you were told that you weren't smart enough to even graduate from high school. But look at you. Tell us your story. So when when I was in grade school, um, I had problems with reading. So I had this stutter and I had problems pronouncing words and, you know, just general difficulty in, in reading. Over time, this became a big enough problem that the teacher decided to you know, put me into extra classes over recess where, you know, a speech therapist would sit down with me. And after a few months of trying to help me, 
um, my parents realized what was going on and came to meet with the school. And the administrator that sat down and talked to them um, really communicated to them that they should expect that I'd continue to have problems and that the expectations that they had of me going to university and, you know, going on for higher education was probably thinking uh, a little too high for what I'd actually achieve and that I'd probably never graduate high school and that they'd have to be a part of making sure that they took care of me for, you know, the rest of rest of my life. And for any parent who looks at education as a way out for their children, you know, a way for them to move up and have more impact than maybe they had uh, growing up, uh, that's really devastating, you know. And I don't think that I was the only Indigenous kid who experienced that going through high school, you know, talking with other people that went to high school around the same time as me. It wasn't uncommon for someone to look at, you know, an, an Indigenous kid, see that they were struggling in school and just say, you know, you'll never be able to achieve because that's kind of what what happens to kids who look like you and come from a background like you. And over time, my parents really, really became committed to making sure that these expectations that happened with, with my, my teacher and the administrators just didn't come true. And they worked really, really hard to make sure that I had different opportunities to learn in different ways. Uh, I think that's something that my, my dad in particular really emphasized and that my mom really made sure that she operationalized when, when she went about teaching me was that uh, I didn't have to learn in the same way that I learned at school. I could learn through stories. I could learn through, you know, doing things with my hands. Um, I could learn things in, you know, the, the, the various ways that, that, you know, we learn in community that maybe aren't that popular or as mainstream as we might see in, in school systems within the city or kind of the mainstream. And those things really helped me. And over time, I I changed from having the expectation that I wasn't going to be able to achieve anything to suddenly being gifted. And it was a really interesting shift that happened where suddenly instead of having really low expectations and believing that um, you, you weren't going to perform, that suddenly they had very high expectations and they expected me, me to perform. And that shift in expectations has really taught me that the way that we see our kids, the way that we talk to our kids is extremely important in helping them to believe what they're going to end up being. You know, um, one of the one of the great moments that I always experience whenever I go visit, you know, Indigenous communities and talk about education in my story is people start to start to see that, well, maybe that's me too. Maybe what's happened is that people just have low expectations of me. And maybe if I change my own expectations for what I can achieve, I can become like you too. You know, and, and I think that that's a really important message for our kids to hear. That's a powerful message of hope and inspiration. What a fantastic story. So now you're in the system, the healthcare system, and you're going to become the head of the CMA. And one of the things we've been trying to deal with as First Nations people, Métis people in the system there is dealing with racism in the healthcare system. And people in Canada will talk about Joyce Eshaquan dying in the hospital. You know, she had the, the, the strength to tape it. And, and that went viral. People saw the racism and the discrimination that she endured in her last hours of, of life. And then the system in British Columbia, where the doctors and the nurses were doing the, the alcohol guessing game of, of people that are coming for help, 
but they're doing a guessing game. So systemic racism, systemic discrimination in the system that's supposed to be there to help people in need. So you're there now, the CMA. What can the CMA do as an organization to address that? And even you as a, as a doctor, like to, to think of what can be done to address some of those things happening in the healthcare system right now. So I think one of the things that I always think about whenever I see experiences like what Joyce went through or, you know, what patients in BC went through that you just, just kind of went over is that the first experience of racism is never the first time. You know, the, the fact that Joyce ended up live streaming her experience, a bunch of things happened before that that brought her to the point where she said to herself, um, you know, I have to make sure that this is documented, that there's some sort of record of what happens because I've experienced this before. And I think that's a really important message for people to hear from Canadian doctors. You know, uh, we need to normalize within the system that these lived experiences, they're not these extremes that live on the fringe of medicine. This is what happens day to day to people who are indigenous and black and other persons of color. And that the the expectations that we have as providers for what's acceptable in interacting with someone, you know, the, the part of the live stream that I found most concerning was when the provider actually looked into the Facebook uh, live camera and you couldn't see any fear in their eyes. You know, they weren't concerned that they were being recorded. You know, and I think that a lot of times when people interact with Indigenous patients, they expect that the ways that they treat them, which are sometimes very negative, um, are something that someone will just shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's just that's just how it is. You know, um, I will say that Canadian physicians in general don't want to harm patients. You know, like you, you won't sit down and talk to a physician and have them express to you that, yeah, if I just harmed a patient, that would just be a great day at work. But the reality is that these systems that we've inherited, you know, this colonialization that shaped our Canadian culture and that we work in has normalized that disrespecting and at times harming Indigenous patients is something that's very normal, you know, and I think that the Canadian Medical Association has a role in making sure that one, we validate people's lived experience, that we don't have to interrogate what happened to you. We can just believe you. And the fact that you experienced harm is enough harm for us to act and, and change things. And that we can sit down with providers and let them know that we, we live in, you know, this system where we've normalized these different things, that systemic racism is something that's real across the system. The intensity may be different from place to place, but the fact that it's there, um, we don't need to debate. You know, systemic racism is there, you know, because that's part of the cultures that we've inherited and the history that we've inherited here in Canada. Uh, and then creating a space for providers and patients to work their way through seeing each other as people again. You know, really humanizing uh, Indigenous patients who at times, you know, experience these projected, you know, biases or these uh, these caricatures where, you know, they're, they're thought of as, you know, patients who don't care about their health or can't understand explanations or who don't want to participate in their care. When in reality, every Indigenous patient that I've ever provided care to or talked to um, 
about about their health cares deeply about being healthy. They care deeply about, you know, making good choices about, um, you know, how to how to improve their health and wellness. And so, so I, I think that there's a big role for the Canadian Medical Association to work in in all th- three of those areas. And I, I believe that there's a strong role to make sure that everybody who needs to participate in this this discussion uh, gets their seat at the table. You know, the CMA can't do this alone. Uh, indigenous communities, families, and patients have to be there at the table with everyone else who makes decisions within the healthcare system. And their lived experience needs to be accepted as something that, that can guide us in, in making better choices. Okay, so CMA, you know, Canadian Medical Association, families, patients. What's the role of the federal government, provincial governments in all of this? You know, what what more can be done or what should those governments be doing to address some of the things we just talked about? So the the provincial government and the federal government really make choices in how these systems are designed. And so if they're not at the table, it's actually very, very hard to make any sort of change. You know, you can have very well-meaning providers, well-meaning patients. If they're put into a system that encourages certain actions or, you know, approaches, um, you're going to have racialization because that's that's what working environments do is they, they change the different choices that you have available to you. So both the provincial and the federal government have to be at the table. They have to be open to actually making different choices about how systems are designed uh, I think in talking with uh, Indigenous patients, communities, and, you know, representative organizations, um, we can understand which parts of the system we need to make different decisions. You know, one of the things that uh, comes really clearly from Joyce Echicon's experience is that we, we need a different way of reporting harm. You know, uh, being expected to enter into the system, which in and of itself may be filled with systemic racism, um, is something that's never going to lead us to, you know, that, that end outcome of having a system that's safer and uh, supports Indigenous patients better. Um, also, things like access to care, you know, investments in where we lay down infrastructure, places where, you know, we're able to provide virtual care, you know, basic things like broadband and Internet access. I mean, the, these are choices that both the federal and provincial government can make that will have enormous impacts on on patient care and really align with what the Canadian Medical Association is really about with changing, you know, the culture of medicine, making sure that access to care improves for, you know, all Canadians and Indigenous peoples, um, making sure that we address racialization and other things. Um, so, yes, uh, the federal government and provinces definitely have a, a place to a place and role to play in all of this. Definitely. I think with the uh, upcoming federal budget and we're putting as much pressure as we can, and we urge all Canadians and people to get behind a push to make sure that uh, adequate infrastructure is uh, available to First Nations people, Indigenous people, because broadband is key. Infrastructure, um, especially everything's looking at virtual health care, that's part of that. You mentioned as well different ways to report harm, and there's been some dialogue about an ombudsperson or uh, some sort of a, a new mechanism to be put in place where People feel safe about reporting incidents, uh, you know, when they've they've experienced racism or discrimination or just uh, not receiving proper care within a system that's there to provide care for everybody. What are your thoughts on that piece? Any like, is that what you're referring to? Was it a possible ombudsperson? I think that that's one of the the different solutions. I, I think at the core is really understanding how how complaints get into the system. So, you know, you as a patient come to the system and you say, well, I have a concern or harm has happened. 
right? The system forces you to share your name. It forces you to be a part of this process that is really uh, filled with conflict and opposition against the person on the other side. And then it also forces the provider into a situation where if they don't fight, they could possibly lose their opportunity to practice. Like it doesn't give them a lot of space to change. And so these are the constructs that that exist when it comes to submitting concerns and complaints. If an ombudsman can provide a different opportunity to share, you know, if we could move towards, you know, restorative ways of healing, if we could move towards, you know, talking about uh, patient bills of rights, you know, making sure that there's a threshold for what people can expect. You know, we, we often talk about how the federal government doesn't interfere with uh, provincial health care. The reality is with medical assisted dying, we've actually implemented a procedure across all jurisdictions in Canada that's federally federally led, you know, and so the federal government does have the power to do some of these things. It can't do it by itself, but we can definitely have these, these conversations, right? And uh, I think as long as we look at whatever whatever tool or mechanism we use, whether it's an ombudsman or changing concerns or complaint systems, etc., if the goal is to get to that end result of patients feeling empowered, of giving space for providers, depending in situations, uh, to change and become better at what they do and, and more patient-centered, um, I, I think that there's a lot of different things that could work, but definitely an ombudsman is is one of the ways that it could work. Okay, now I'm going to switch tracks a little bit. I was, um, well, we're from the same area, Southern Saskatchewan, Treaty 4 Territory, and I grew up on Little Black Bear, First Nation, and uh, I was born at this place called the Fort Capel Indian Hospital because there was only Indian hospitals set up for Indians in Canada. I don't know if people knew that, but there was a separate uh, healthcare system. Some will say, well, that was very racist, discriminatory. Some will say, well, that was an example of the, the treaty right to healthcare being implemented, the medicine chest clause in Treaty 6. You know, it depends who you talk to. But the point I'm raising this is that that hospital was transferred to the local tribal council a few years back. It was one of the pieces of work we did. But part of the agreement with the federal crown for transferring it to First Nations control was that there would be uh, an incorporation of uh, traditional First Nations healing practices or methods into that uh, that hospital, that acute care center. So now it's today it's called the All Nations Healing Hospital, and there there are two systems when you go in there, like the the Western way, and then the First Nations traditional healing way. So it's in traditional practices. What are your thoughts on that? So my initial thought is that good medicine is good medicine. So whether it comes from you know a traditional healer who's taking taking plants or other traditional medicines and bringing them together as a way to heal and support wellness, or whether it's kind of a Western approach that uses a mixture of, you know, pharmaceuticals or surgeries, et cetera, in order to intervene to promote health and wellness. Um, If it's good, it'll have good effects, right? And I, I think we've really moved past the idea that we used to have that you know, traditional medicine was somehow not medicine. You know, we, we've moved into just having everything, like, be where it's supposed to be. You know, uh, one of the things that I have always found interesting about traditional medicine is that if you're a traditional medicine practitioner who's good, you have lots of people coming to you for help. You know, it's it's like a validation mechanism within community where you can tell whether or not someone... Uh, has learned what they need to learn is providing good medicine based on who goes to them, right? And that that has some parallels with what happens in 
you know, Western medicine where people get degrees or they go through advanced training and, you know, they get letters after their name. Like that's how we kind of label or say, you know, people know what they're doing, right? And I think just accepting that, you know, medicine, no matter where it comes from, as long as it has, it has the outcome of making people feel healthier and more well, um, that's really the point where we need to go. Like the, the, the Fort Coppell Hospital, All Nations Hospital, is a wonderful example of how giving patients choice actually leads to the best kind of health and wellness. You know, no matter how you choose to be healthy, um, as long as you pursue it and there's, you know, structures and protections in place to make sure that um, you you give a, an experience to patients where they're, they're in control, they can make choices, um, they can feel out different ways of you know, pursuing their own health and wellness. I, I think that that's the kind of system that, that we should be working towards. You know, I, I'm hoping in, you know, other 10, 20 years, we'll eventually reach a point where we're teaching traditional medicines within or traditional healing within medical schools and, you know, having our own elders and knowledge keepers, they're actually sharing um, their own insights. You know, um, a lot of the pharmaceuticals that I use day to day as an anesthesiologist actually were indigenous medicines. You know, they, they weren't things that were created in a lab. They were taken from, you know, willow bark or they were taken from, you know, a plant that, that was harvested. You know, Senecot, which is used for constipation. I mean, that was something that was harvested in Saskatchewan. And you used to get paid to, you know, gather it for... Seneca yeah, root. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, understanding that history and how... Uh, the division that we thought was there between Western medicine and traditional medicine really isn't, like there is no line, it's all the same thing. Um, I think that, that getting to that point faster is really good for patients and then making sure that they know that there's different options outside of what they originally thought they'd have uh, is is the best way for us to support patients. Yeah, I think you made a good point about choice. Like At the All Nations Hospital in Saskatchewan, southern Saskatchewan, um, there is a choice when you go to that hospital, Western way, First Nations way, our combination thereof. So it's it's a, it's a good statement, but that's in one province and territory. So I'm glad that you're going into the CMA because that's national. That's across Canada. You know, um, I, I always say if you see something good in one territory, maybe that could be replicated in other provinces and other territories. You know, that's something to bring nationally. And uh, I think everybody's going to be looking to you as the head of the CMA. Though. Hey, you got some good experience in Saskatchewan. Maybe we can expand that and grow that across Canada. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that there's a lot of good work happening in both traditional medicine and Western medicine um, to, to break down those barriers between the two and in different provinces. But like you said, it's making sure that we amplify and make sure that people know about what's working there already. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I'll definitely do as Canadian Medical Association president in, in 2022 is making sure that people know where the good work is happening. Mm -hmm. You know, making sure that, you know, they know that they could go to All Nation Hospital or, you know, other places in Alberta or Ontario or Quebec or, you know, across the country that are doing good work like this. You know, Wabano Center in, in you know, Ottawa, you know. There's there's some brilliant work being done over there, and and I think it's it's one of the the benefits of having people with different lived experience in leadership positions is they know where the work is happening, you know they uh, and I, I'm hoping that especially when it comes to um, you know indigenous health and you know Western versus traditional medicine, uh, people feel like there's less of a barrier to convince 
you know, someone with lived experience like myself that, you know, these are things that could really benefit not just Indigenous patients, but Canadian patients, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and really breaking down that barrier moving forward with, you know, subsequent persons. Awesome. Let's jump forward right now, like we're in the middle, uh, after a full year of COVID-19, this pandemic, you know, it's had its impact uh, not only on Canada, but the entire world. And uh, as, as a doctor, and you see a lot of the things happening uh, regarding COVID-19, and now we see the vaccines coming. You know, we have Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca now, now Johnson & Johnson. There's four have been approved by Canada. What are your thoughts on the, the rollout of those things and the impacts that you see uh, right at the ground level as a doctor? I, I think one of the impacts that I, I've seen early on, which, which is slowly getting better, is just availability. You know, especially in January when, when Pfizer was first, uh, you know, approved um, it was tough for Indigenous communities to know, like, when when is it our turn? You know, when do we get access? And then once the access became a little bit better, then people started discussing, you know, what are how are we making choices on who gets access? You know, so we have limited supply, who gets it first and other things. And I, I think in general we're becoming better at it. Um, I think there was a time when we weren't doing it very well, um, but I think we're now moving into a phase where we're making better choices. We're making sure our elders and knowledge keepers are getting uh, immunized early on. We're starting to talk about how, you know, the youth maybe should be bumped up as far as priority because they're they're a proper they're a possible way where, you know, COVID could get spread. You know, just because of the way that we have multi generational housing and, you know, the realities of social determinants, um, you know, in some of our communities. Um, so I, I think we're definitely moving into into a better spot. Um, more and more I'm hearing questions about, you know, should I take this vaccine? You know, is it something that we can trust? And that that links back to, you know, once again, the colonial history that we inherited where, you know, Indigenous people were experimented on. You know, they were placed in situations where they did experience harm within healthcare systems or they weren't given the opportunity to actually have choices about what they did and didn't do. And people are scared. You know, people are scared about what might happen. And I'm seeing leadership across the country within our communities uh, really help to communicate the message that, you know, they've looked at this, the vac- the vaccine is safe, you know, showing that they themselves are getting the vaccine. That goes a far way. And also just uh, validating that people being afraid is, is normal, you know. There's a lot of things that have happened across the past year that uh, have been really confusing and have really upended the way that, uh, you know, we, we currently live. Like, I, I'm thinking about, you know, power season ha- starting over the summer and, you know, all, all of the different uh, conferences for youth and elders and, you know, the different gatherings that, that are supposed to be happening, you know, over the spring and summer. Um, all that's going to change this year, you know, and that's going to be hard because that, that really cuts to the core of how our, our communities uh, interact and the way our social networks work. And the way that we connect, uh, you know, old with young and, you know, families together and, you know, keep in contact with each other. And uh, as we work through it this year and look towards the following year, um, people are going to have to understand how the vaccine will, you know, get us back to, you know, uh, sun dances and, you know, sweat lodges and powwows and all these other things like th- this is how we become free is making sure that we, we deal with this directly. So I know to our listeners out there, like, uh as first nations people we were targeted as some of the most vulnerable 
And so uh, in terms of uh, order of priority of who has access, you know, it was the, of course, our elders and knowledge keepers and our old folks home, people that are living in, in the old folks homes and, and then the frontline workers, right? So there's a, I think we were third or fourth on the priority list just because of our overcrowded living conditions. Like we have overcrowded housing, you know, and then lack of access to clean water. So uh, indigenous people were, were the most vulnerable and that's why they were targeted to have access to these vaccines as soon as when they were approved. So that's finally taking shape. That that's coming out. Um, but I'm glad you raised that that point about fear of vaccines. You know, and uh, a lot of our elders were were reluctant to take them. Uh, even for myself now as national chief, we're trying to get the message out that these are safe. They've been proven to be safe, and the science is there. And we are encouraging people, uh, if you have access to them, to take them because uh, it, it's. Uh, uh, for the health of uh, themselves as individuals and families. And so could, would you concur with that? I, I absolutely would. And I, I think that if you don't have trust in the health system, have trust in your political leaders, have trust in your family, have trust in, you know, voices that um, have shown that they do care about you. You know, I, I think I, I can't underscore the importance of having, you know, our political and community leaders actually showing that they're doing their own vaccination and that they support vaccination. You know, um, the trust with the healthcare system is going to take a long time to to rebuild. You know, not just for you know what's happened in the past, but also the harm that happens because of racism and you know lack of access to care and you know poor choices when it comes to infrastructure and you know programming and other things that health systems have made. But in the interim, we can use the trust that people have already and. I think one of the, the great things that I've seen is, you know, vaccines vaccines being brought into the community instead of people being brought to the vaccines, you know, using community centers, using, you know, the, the school within a community, the band center, et cetera, um, as a place that people already feel comfortable and trust, you know, in order to get their vaccinations. And so uh, the more that we can do that over the next uh, few months as we get our communities vaccinated and more broadly the Canadian population uh, I think the faster we're going to get out of this. Yeah, back to the sense of normalcy. So that's that's one way. And that's a good segue to my last question, Alika. You know, I always, in light of uh, all the challenges we're facing in Canada and as Indigenous peoples, you know, colonization, the residential schools, the Indian Act, uh, now COVID-19, um, what gives you hope? Like to me, like just listening to you and see, knowing what you've come through, uh, like personally, like, you give me hope personally as an individual for what you overcome and to see you heading up the CMA now, like in 2022, that's amazing. Like for me, that's great. But for you as Dr. Alika Lafontaine, to our listeners, what gives you hope? You know, I, I spend a lot more time on social media than I did before. And I see that there are so many voices across, uh, you know, Turtle Island that have audiences and are sharing really, really important messages. And what gives me the most hope is that I'm seeing people have a voice. You know, there, there was a time, you know, 10, 15 years ago where I couldn't even say the word racism. You know, I, I'd give a presentation on Indigenous health and I'd talk about how patients were scared or other things, but I couldn't actually use the word racism because people weren't ready to hear hear that word. And you know, uh, Ted Cusance, who, you know, was a past chief over at Kisaku's First Nation, he, he told me years ago that 
people who experience trauma are always ready to share their story, but people aren't ready to hear it. And I think we live in an age now where not only are people becoming more comfortable in hearing like the reality of what it means to be an Indigenous person, an Indigenous patient, um, and to have these struggles, but they're also finding different ways to share those messages, you know, help people to see and experience, um, you know, what they live with day to day in a way that really connects and resonates with them. You know, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful because I see, you know, youth and elders and leaders across the country who are making a difference every day and who I look to in order to, you know, help me understand where I need to focus in, in the different areas that I have influenced. So I, I'm extremely hopeful moving forward. I think the more that our, our youth uh, live up to the potential that they have and the more that our elders are able to connect, you know, the past and the teachings that we need to understand with kind of our lived reality today, um, I, I see us being a much more powerful uh, group of nations moving into the future than, than we are today, and, and that's an extremely hopeful statement. Well, that's a, a powerful statement to end on. Dr. Alika Lafontaine, congratulations on becoming the first Indigenous person to head up the CMA and for all you're doing for our people. Thank you so much for coming on our Akamemo podcast. Thank you, National Chief. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemet podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. <laughs>